So, it's almost Christmas. You guys excited? I don't know if you noticed, we've got some Christmas tree action happening over here. It's starting to feel a little more Christmassy in this building. Actually, we have loads of Christmas trees. There's like a whole like forest we had to cut down to get up the stairs there. Tiny forest, but still. Um, and uh, I don't know if you noticed uh, that the text today, not exactly a go-to for a Christmas kind of message. Um, and if you kind of came today, maybe you're here for the first time, or maybe you're just kind of checking it out, or maybe you've been coming for a while and you were expecting like a nice kind of cozy Christmas sermon today. Uh, maybe a pastor wearing a Christmas sweater with like light up antlers. I would totally wear that if I had it. Unfortunately, I don't have that sweater. I don't have any Christmas sweaters. Uh, you can buy that for me for Christmas, maybe. Um, and so this year, we're not, we're not exactly doing an Advent series in any traditional sense, uh, though I'm not against them in general, just so if, you're, if you are new here or only been coming for a while, you're like, what, they don't like Christmas? What's going on in the service? Uh, we have done it before in the past, and I, and I definitely hope to do it again. That's something I find very important. Uh, but as I thought about this year and, and was praying about it and looking at the text uh, that we're going, to, going through today and what we'll go through next week in our last service of the year for Church at Five, I believe that God wanted us to stay the course and continue uh, in this text as we kind of make our way through Paul's letter to the Colossians. So hopefully uh, you're going to be with me, and uh, even though it's not exactly maybe what you might have expected in a Christmas service or around the Christmas time. I think this is an important message, and it's... It's hard to jump into this without tying it into what we've been looking at the last three weeks, which is the text right before this. And I pointed out actually last week, uh, and that was last week and the last three weeks, we looked at 15 through 20, uh, and I pointed out that there's kind of this really dramatic shift in the text where he's going from addressing them, addressing the readers, or so addressing us kind of very directly and, and how things apply to us. Uh, and how things that we're supposed to be doing and just and addressing them directly and how he's excited about them, he's been praying for them, and then he just really jumps into this text about Christ. And uh, since Jesus is going to be a little bit of the point and the main uh, subject of our sermon today, I want to read that text again because, as I've mentioned already a few times, I really encourage you to, to memorize this or to really let it sink into your heart, even if it's not word for word, but that the message of it really sinks into your heart because it's something that will always connect us back with who Christ really is, who is our creator, who is our redeemer, um, and why it's, in, why, why it's important to know. You can listen to the last few messages, uh, but uh, I just want to read through this text again as we, before we get into what we're looking at today. So verse 15 through 20 of chapter 1 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and indivisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth 
or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And this is a hymn that he that seems to be kind of just jolted into the text, and it's uh, this poetic and profound expression of the true and, and full nature of Christ in his authority over creation and in his majesty as creator and redeemer. And so he's seen here in these two sections, right, as creator. So that means everything, every single thing that we know in the universe and everything that we don't know yet, he has created everything. It's all created for him, by him, and held together down at the smallest level and the largest level by him. And from that, we also see him as redeemer, not just of us personally, but redeemer of creation itself. And that's what we see. We talked about last week when viewed as both creator and redeemer, we see that he is reconciling all things, all things to himself. He's righting the wrongs of the fall of man and bringing all things into reconciliation all things in this fallen world. And it's not, I don't think we have to convince anybody that it's a fallen world. There's messed up things that happen in this world. It's not, it's not right. Something's missing. Something is, is, has gone wrong in creation and Christ is reconciling it. And he has begun this work through the peace that he's made by his blood on the cross. And he's starting it by restoring, by bringing reconciliation between us and God, bringing a, rest, a restoration to that relationship between us and God. And that's what we talked about last week. And as I mentioned, it seems to be a little bit out of place surrounding this kind of beautiful depiction of the nature of Christ. We see his redemptive nature as it applies to us directly. And right before that, it reminds us that redemption and forgiveness for our sins comes through Christ alone. And that's in verse 14, which we talked also about last week. And this brings us to our text for today. As he comes out of this, this kind of painting, this vivid image of, of Christ. And it just kind of, it almost, you almost feel like you're kind of taking back, like you're looking at a piece of art, but now you've been like, you've stepped to the other side of the room and you're seeing the whole picture of Christ. Not just how he applies to me specifically, but as creator of everything. And just this kind of beautiful, all-encompassing image of Christ. And then he jumps right back in. And in fact, he, the very first word after this hymn is, and you. So he brings it right back. So, okay, that was Christ. Now come back closer to the painting. Let's, let's see where you fit into this. And he almost seems to be kind of uh, making a point that we would pay attention, you know? He's like, hey, this next part is important. It applies to you. We're coming back. We're coming back around to how this applies to you. And it begins in verse 21 by expressing the, the natural state of mankind by expressing the natural state of mankind. So it's a really harsh and, and a just, yeah, a harsh comparison, right? We just looked at Christ and all of his majesty, and when he brings it back down to us, the first thing that we see with you is our alienation is how he begins. And so what I want to look at today, or what I want to focus on, is I want to go through these just few verses, 21 through 23, and see how it shows us and how we move and how we are moved from our natural state, our fallen state that we're born into, and our alienation and transferred or transformed into new creatures in Christ. So I'm calling this alienated to reconciled. 
There's a process there that happens there. There's something that happens, and I want to talk about that. But first, we need to look at how we, what is our natural state that we're born into. Because if we don't understand that, we're not going to understand what we've been reconciled from. We're not going to understand the grace we've been given. We're not going to understand the true beauty and grace and love that's been shown us in what Christ really did in paying for us on the cross. So let's start with where we are, or where we begin. In verse 21 it says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Not a great start. And as I did last week, I'll compare this. He talks a lot um, more about this in Ephesians. Uh, and I just want to compare just similar imagery that he uses in verse or Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and the first part of 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. So we see the same kind of imagery. Uh, alienated, dead in our trespasses, dead in our transgressions, as we followed the ways of the world, did evil deeds, hostile in our minds. We were all hopelessly alienated from God, completely lost, dead and blind in our sins and even blind to our sins. No matter how we feel about how we think our state was in our lives before we knew Christ, or no matter how we feel today if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is the reality. This is the truth that the Bible teaches. This is what God's word tells us about us. We're lost, blind, dead, hopeless in our transgressions, alienated from God. At the core of our humanity, we are all alienated, hostile, and doing evil deeds. And I think that it's important to note this order. Uh, it's, I feel like there's a bit of a, a progression that we can draw from. And what I mean by that is that we don't start off doing evil, doing wicked deeds, and then that in turn alienates us from God. It, it doesn't start with us in our actions. So, okay, I've done some wrong things, this, and I've done wrong things here, and done wrong things there. It started all the way back when I was, you know, two years old, and, you know, being a bit of a rebellious little kid or whatever it might be and that has begun the whole process of me being alienated from God it actually went the other way the reality is the exact opposite when Adam and Eve rejected God's ways in disobeying his command they changed everything they changed the entire dynamic of creation they were created before that they had that perfect unity with God that we're being drawn back to through reconciliation but we are not born into that. Because of their sin, the world is a fallen place, and we're born into that. We're born into sin. We're born alienated from God. We are the products of this sin and born into alienation. And this alienation from God is absolute. It's total. I mean, look at the, the wording that's being used here. Alienation. Dead in your sins. And I ask, can a dead man bring himself back to life? Can somebody who's died be resurrected by their own power, by their own strength? 
Can somebody who's blind simply decide one day that they want to see and just open their eyes? No. And to quote John Piper on this, the absolute nature of our alienation from God, he says, our sinful corruption is so deep and so strong as to make us slaves of sin and morally unable morally unable to overcome our own rebellion and blindness. This inability to save ourselves from ourselves is total. We are utterly dependent on God's grace to overcome our rebellion, to give us eyes to see and effectively draw us to the Savior. That's the state that we begin in, completely lost and alienated and dead in our sins. In Ephesians 4.18, it continues with this imagery. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of hearts. It's in them. They're alienated from, their alienation from God is what produces the hardness of heart. It's what we've been born into. The state of mankind is alienation. And so, is, so the ignorance to God is a part of us. We can't see the truth in our, on our own. Somebody has to turn on the light. Somebody has to open our eyes. Bring us back to life so that we can see. We are also, though, created for fellowship with God. So we're born in this alienation, and yet in also a part of our creation, a part of our design, is to have relationship and fellowship with God. And this is what draws us to this place of hostility. He's the giver of life. All hope comes from him and we have a part of us deep down that longs to be connected to that hope longs to be connected to Christ or to God as our creator to be loved by him and to love him but in our alienation or in our alienated state we're blind to the truth we're blind to the truth that of what we really long for we don't know that it's really God that we're seeking. And to see that relationship restored. And so without him, and without this knowledge, we turn to anything we can find that may offer relief from this alienation that afflicts us to seek a fulfillment of our desires. And we do this, right, in relationships. Oh, if I just get married, if I just find the right person... Or if I just have enough sexual partners, or if I just have enough friends around me, enough people who like me and, and give me affirmation for who I am, then life will be fine. Then I'll find fulfillment. We also see this in, in many, many other things. I think money and career is another really big one, especially in, around this age group. You're looking to, what am I going to do with my life? Where am I going? And you can, we can go into this direction of, oh, I just need to get a great job. I just need more money. Then I'll have security. Then I can find satisfaction in myself. 
And of course, there's many other things. Maybe you have something in your own heart that you've sought or remember seeking before you knew Christ to find satisfaction in. So many things that we seek to fill the great gap that's created by our alienation from our Creator through sin. And to be clear, these aren't bad things in themselves. It's not bad, you know, sex isn't a bad thing. Marriage is a good thing. Relationships are a good thing. Friends are a good thing. A good career is a good thing. Money's not evil in itself. These are things that actually are designed and given to us by God to add to the joy of the relationship that we have with Him, to help us to find our satisfaction in Him through even the things that He's blessed us with. In our alienation, there's nothing, though, that can really, no matter what we seek, there's nothing we can find in this life that will satisfy the whole that's been built within us due to this separation from our Creator. But when we are connected to God, when we find that connection, all these things are seen as the grace of God. Seen as blessings from Him. We're blessed with the relationships. We're blessed with a good job. We're blessed with great friendships. And these things cause us then to glorify God rather than to seek to replace Him with them. They cannot in themselves offer us the joy, the true joy and hope that we're really seeking found only in a relationship to God. And so without the truth, without the truth, we begin to resent the things that we're seeking. And this, is, this happens all the time. We become hostile in our minds, is the text, as the text said, towards the very things that we're seeking. For example, if you think that you're going to find satisfaction that's meant to be satisfied in the hope and the relationship with God in your marriage, you're going to end up resenting that person a lot. More and more as the years go on. If you seek that fulfillment that's meant to be found in relationship with God through any relationships, it's going, they're going to let you down. It's, they're going to fail because we're human and you're going to fail them too. And it's going to lead to resentment. You're going to resent the people and the relationships. You're going to resent the job that you were so looking forward to, so excited about, knowing it was going to be the thing that was going to find, you were going to find satisfaction in and fulfillment in. You're going to finally make it. If that's what you're seeking, you will end up resenting it. And any stuff, any things in this life that we seek as a replacement. And this hostility gives way to evil deeds. And I find this, there's a lot we could say about evil deeds, but I would just sum it up that in this, that what it ends up becoming when it, as we look at this progression, we're, hot, we're, we're alienated from God, we seek things that we think will fulfill the, the, the need that we have that can only be satisfied in God. And then we begin to resent those things. And then, kind of idiotically, our evil deeds becomes this round and round, kind of roundabout that we just get on and don't know where to get off, which exit to take. And we're just going round and round, seeking satisfaction from creation rather than the Creator. And when it fails us, when the marriage fails because we resent that person because they're, they're obviously not able to fulfill what we've put on them, 
or the job or whatever it might be, we amazingly convince ourselves, well, I just need more of what's not satisfied me so far. Well, I just need a new marriage. Well, I just need more friends or new friends or more money or a better job. If it didn't work before, it's not going to work the second time. But we go through these cycles over and over again, right? And we think, well, if I just had more of what didn't work before, then this time it will work. I mean, it's like, that's really what we're saying here. And obviously, when we put it in those words, it's like, yeah, that, sounds, that doesn't sound right. Something's, something's not quite right about that. And, even, and this is the state that humanity is in, in their alienation from God, without Christ, without the hope of glory within us. We'll look at next week. Without that, this is the cycle that goes on and on and on. But even as Christians, we can fall into this pattern when we resort back to this original state of our alienation, which we can easily do, going back to our flesh, our human nature. The text gives us an answer. And the answer, what's the answer? Jesus. Jesus is the answer. I feel like you guys should have known that. It's typically a good guess in church. You can always go with Jesus. You at least won't be scolded for saying Jesus. I want you to note the transition between the start of verse 21 and verse 22. In verse 21, it starts with, and you. And then he shows us the state we're born into, the complete hopelessness that we have without Christ. You, you were alienated. You hadn't, there was no hope. You were in this endless cycle going round and round and round, doing evil deeds, seeking satisfaction that you could never have. You just went round and round in complete hopelessness. But in verse 22, he, we see the answer. He, there is Jesus, by the way. He, Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. We've been reconciled. Something happened. But it wasn't something we did. It wasn't something that we did in our strength or decided to do. We were just going round and round in the roundabout, not knowing what was going on, completely oblivious to the idiocy of it all. But then he was like, uh, hey, why don't you take this exit here, man? You're getting, making me dizzy. We, you were lost without hope, blind to even the true state you were in. Not even seeing how you were actually a slave to the desires of your flesh in an endless loop of seeking after that which you could not possibly obtain, which is to know and be known by God. You didn't even know you needed it, and you had no chance of finding it. This, this is basically the message of Ecclesiastes, if you want to read through that encouraging book, that it doesn't matter what you do, no matter what you seek, no matter how successful you are in any area of life, it will not satisfy. It offers nothing. And yet the world goes on and on seeking it. This utter hopelessness has only one way out. There's only one way out and that is by being rescued. The rescuing of your soul. 
Christ has to come in and change something. He has to come in and do a work. He has to open your eyes or you cannot see. We were dead and brought to life. You know, we often think of, of Jesus as Savior, as Rescuer. You know, I, I think of a lifeguard. I'm not the first person to use this image. So if you've heard it before, you get to hear it again. And the idea is that, you know, we think that Jesus kind of, he, he's like throwing us a hand. Hey, we're in the storm, but we're in the waves, we're drowning. And he says, here, take my hand. Or here, throw, throws us the rope and says, here, I'll, I'll pull you in. But that's not the depiction that Scripture gives That's not the depiction we see of Christ in Scripture. The depiction we see in Scripture is you were dead at the bottom of the lake and Jesus dove in, brought you out, put you on the shore, and in his vigorous attempts to bring bring you back to life, he even gave his own to save you. That's the life saver that Jesus is in in the Bible not one that's just throwing us a hand we were dead at the bottom of the lake and he resurrected us brought us back to life made us new creatures in Christ Ephesians 2 in the second part of 3 verse uh, verse 3 to 5 says like the rest you were by nature deserving of wrath You deserve to be on that roundabout. You deserved it. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. Made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. It is by grace you have been saved. Wasn't you who decided one day you know what, I think uh, I'm not going to try to seek money or power or family or friends or authority or anything that the world is presenting to me. I'm just going to choose Jesus. It was Jesus that drew you to him. It was Jesus that brought you out from the bottom of the lake and put you on the shore and brought and breathed life back into you so that you could see that you needed him. You were made alive in Christ. Jesus made the first move. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. Our love for him, our turning to him, springs out from the love that we've received from him. And only out of his love, only out of his love for us, out of God's great mercy, and Christ's love for us, we were incapable to choose him without that. We were incapable to love him without first receiving that love from him. He did it. It was his work that made the peace between us and the Father by his blood on the cross, as we saw in verse 20 of Colossians 1, we talked about last week. We've been called in and by love out of our sin, out of our alienation. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, 
he died for us. While we were still messing up, while we had not, wanted nothing to do with him, while we were completely lost and blind and happy to be there because we didn't know there was anything better, he still chose to die for us and to love us and to draw us to him. You and I were blind in our slavery to sin when Jesus died for us and called us then to himself. But there seems to be this catch in the text that I think we need to address. I'm not going to just skim over it. In verse 23, it says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. If indeed you continue in the faith. So how can we continue in the faith if I could do nothing to choose Jesus because I was dead in my sin, how then can I now hope to continue in the faith by my own strength? What, how do I do that? And the key here that we as Christians often forget and is often lost when we talk about the gospel, it's by trusting more. We are able to continue in the faith by trusting always more in Christ and what he did on the cross for us than what we can ever do or accomplish for him. By always trusting in him more than anything, and what he did more than anything that we can do for him. That means, Christians, there's no praying enough, or reading the Bible enough, or serving in church enough that can do a single thing. There's nothing you can do that can do a single thing to change or sustain the state of your relationship between you and God. There's nothing you can do to change or sustain the state of the relationship between you and God. Paul is urging them to continue in the faith, to stay stable and steadfast, but most important, in the hope from the gospel that they heard. And the gospel they heard is one not of doing our best, because if you don't, God's going to leave you. If you, don't, if you mess it up, God's not going to stick around. If you screw this up, it's over. The hope we have is one in the knowledge that he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He will never abandon us. And I know this because I am his. He paid for me. He paid for you. It's nothing that you did to deserve it. You're his now. He paid for it in blood. And just as alienation from God drives us to hostility and leads towards evil deeds, and that's where, that's where we come from, that's our natural state, so the restoration and peace through relationship to God when we are brought into new life, when we are given that hope, when our eyes are opened to see the nature of our sinful nature and also the hope we have in Christ, by the blood of Christ, this then leads to change. We have joy in all circumstances. We have peace that surpasses understanding. Even when it doesn't make sense, we have peace. We have love for God 
unbelievable love for God because we know, we know what he's done for us. We know the hope we have. We know we didn't have any chance without him. And that out of that comes a love toward him, but also toward fellow, our fellow man, for, toward one another because of the love that we've received. And we then, this then leads to virtuous living or good deeds, if you will. It doesn't go the other way. It doesn't start with good deeds and then lead to relationship. It begins with relationship. He makes a change in us. But it says, if indeed you continue in the faith. So then does that mean that we can lose our faith? Is there a way that I can mess this up somehow? Is there a way that I can kind of go the wrong way too much? Or what does that mean? Well, just as a side note, in the, the way that it's actually worded, uh, especially looking at it in Greek, it's, it's not really saying it as a, that there's a chance that they could lose their faith. But let's address it anyway. Does this mean we can lose our faith? And I know that there are opinions about this, and you're welcome to write me emails and, uh, or come talk to me after the service. But I want to be clear on what I believe, that I believe no, no. We cannot lose our faith because Jesus is too good of a shepherd to let us fall astray, to let us run away. He will seek us out and bring us home. We're his. We're no longer our own. We've been bought. We've been paid for at a great price. And he's not going to let us go. He will hold us to the end. In John 6, 37 through 39, it says, All that the Father gives me, this is Jesus talking, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast them out. I will never cast them out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, and his, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up, that's us, raise us up, on the last day. He's a good shepherd. And when we're in him, and when we're in, when we've been raised to new life, when our eyes have been opened, he will never cast us out. And he will not lose a single one of us. That seems so clear, and this isn't the only place. There's a lot of places we could look at. Again, you can talk to me after the service. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, which I really like, no sin no corruption, no devils in hell, nor sinners upon earth, which includes ourselves, no sinners on earth, can stay the hand of God's grace when he intends to convert a man. When God wants to see us come to him, he brings us to him, and he doesn't let us go. So it's not a question of if you can lose Christ, because Christ won't lose you. We would be then saying that, can Christ lose me? Was his payment not enough? Was the blood not enough? Christ will not lose you. If you belong to him, he keeps you forever. The question then becomes, were you ever his? I know that's a hard one to swallow. Were you ever his? Titus 1.16 
says they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. God, let that never be said about us. And this is the depiction of knowing them by their fruit. Alienation from God will always lead to actions that are self-sustaining driven. It's all about me. All about a self-fulfilling life. Just driving round and round and round. Completely blind to what you're actually producing. Completely blind to the sin that you are a slave to. You're chasing your own tail. We see a similar depiction in Matthew. I don't have it here in my notes, but where Jesus says that there are those who say, hey, we did these things for you. We did them in your name. And he says, I don't know you. I don't know you. So this is talking, and what we see here in Titus, it says they claim to know God, but their actions but with their actions, or by their actions, they deny him. We see this depiction of those, this is people in the church. This is people in the church who say, yeah, I'm a Christian, I know Jesus. And man, this, this is my greatest fear. This keeps me up at night sometimes. That any of you would ever leave here or would ever be able to stay, come to this church on a regular basis and not know Christ, but think you do. To be lost, but not know that you're lost. It's, there's no greater danger than this. People in the world, they're aware that they're there and Christianity is here. The most dangerous place to be is here in the room and not even know that you don't really know Christ. This means that even our, our good deeds, right, with the wrong intentions, with evil intentions, can, can really just be a fruit of the flesh, can be a sign of our alienation from God. You know, look at all the things that I do in church. Look how good I am. That's to borrow Sam's analogy. Look at all the old ladies I've helped across the street. I've heard stories of, of pastors and elders who suddenly realized they don't know Christ and had to pray with, with another elder to, hey, I need to find Jesus. I've, I've, real, I've, I've been just living this because it's just the way that I lived. We can try to create our own hope our own hope through our actions, through the way we live, because we just think that's just how things are done, instead of standing firm in the hope found in Christ alone. In Christ alone. That's why I'm really trying to paint the whole picture for you. You have to understand your alienation first and what it leads to so that we can really see what's being produced within us. And I would say if that's you today, or you're like, I don't know, is that me? I'm not sure. I don't want you to fall into fear. I don't want you to be like, ah, what do, am I a Christian? I don't know. I want you to take this as, a, as an encouragement to put yourself in a place of reflection. 
to think on your relationship with Christ, to look at who he is in Scripture, the real Christ, as I talked about last week, not the Instagram version of Jesus, little snippets here and there of, oh, Jesus said this and Jesus said this, and not actually looking at the the whole context of his messages. Get to know who Christ really is, and you'll know if you have a relationship with him or not. And then you can from there repent and ask God to show himself to you and to show you how to trust in him, how to, that your eyes would be open so that you're not trusting in your own works but in his grace alone. And you could say, well, what about the Christians, those who, who say they believe but now they aren't coming to church anymore? And 1 John 2.19 gives us a pretty clear answer that they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. I want to be clear that this is not about moments of of backsliding or moments of doubt or, or falling into sin or... You're like, oh man, I just, you know, I'm, I'm going through a really hard time right now, and I, you know, I've been falling into sin and having doubts, and you know, maybe I, I'm not even one of us. Maybe I'm not even part of the, of Christianity. Maybe I don't even know Christ. And I don't want you to like go into a crazy kind of spin in your mind because we can, we're going to have moments of struggle and moments of doubt and and moments where we we maybe fall into temptation and. And that's not what we're talking about. These are people who say, you know what, I don't believe it. I don't believe it anymore. I don't believe it. And John says, yeah, you don't believe it because you never really did. You never really understood the hope you have in Christ. If you genuinely knew the real hope of Christ, that you were paid for even though you were a worthless sinner, Christ paid way too much for us but he did because he loved us so much, then if you really grasp this, then you'd begin to grasp the life that has been breathed into your corpse, into your dead body, at the cost of the blood of the perfect and pure sacrifice of Christ. Now, again, I don't want to frighten you with all of this, but rather challenge you that to be reflective. And if you really want to know what you believe If you really want to know what you're holding to, are you holding on to a hope in Christ? Are you holding on to something thinner? Something that's in your own strength? Look how you you go through and how you encounter struggles and suffering, trials and tribulations, hard times in our lives really reveal what's on the inside. It's not enough that you've heard the truth or even said, I believe. We see what we really believe when we hold steadfast and stable in our faith through all seasons. And that's what Paul's really trying to say. Stay, continue in the faith, steadfast, standing firm. Because those who do are those who believe. They go hand in hand. It's not an action of our own, an action of our own part, but an understanding, a knowledge of the way of God an understanding of our nature and what we've been drawn out of. And the question then is, is your faith built on the rock of Christ Jesus? On this firm foundation, we see this kind of imagery of Jesus' analogy of the building your house on the rock 
or on the sand. The rock is Christ and only Christ and only through his grace alone. Meaning nothing you've done. Only when we are fully and have both feet firmly on that truth and that truth only do we have a firm foundation. We can't take just a little bit of it. We've got to take it all. Or are we on, is our, is our belief, is our faith on sand? The sands of tradition. Well, that's just, you know, we go to church. It's what we do. This is what church looks like. This is how we do it. We do it and we read the Bible. We pray and, and we sing songs and we eat cookies afterwards and then we do it again next week. And that's just what we do. And that's not, I do that so I'm a Christian. Or do we do it, or is our belief based on the feelings? Oh, the, the emotion of, of the, our favorite song when it comes on, or being moved by this or that experience. Not a bad thing in itself. God uses emotion powerfully. But it, that's not the thing that you want to build your foundation on. You want to build it on Christ, and the truth of Christ first. And then you can take that truth and experience it through emotion. And the last, I think, one of the, the last sand is the inherited belief of our family, right? That, well, my parents were Christian, their parents are Christian, and so I guess, yeah, I'm a Christian too. And that is also not a firm foundation. And when things really come against us, we will see what we really believe about it. And it goes back full circle to the hymn that we've been looking at, right? The Jesus that we're trusting in, the creator the sustainer of all things, the one who truly has the power and authority to save, and only him. 1 Corinthians 1.8 says, who, that's referring to Jesus, so Jesus Christ will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will not lose those who belong to him. That's the foundation that we can trust in. If you believe this, if you believe it because, if you believe it, sorry, if you believe it, you believe it because he has called you, because he opened your eyes, because he brought you back to new life and made you into a new creature in him. And if he has called you, he will not lose you. Though we will have moments of doubt and times of struggle and fall short of where we want to be and where we think we should be, because our being transformed, our being reconciled, sometimes goes much slower than we'd like. But that is our salvation. Our salvation is not, in my belief, our salvation is not just this one moment that we say a prayer and then you weren't saved, now you're saved, done, forever. Our salvation is not just this one second in time, but a process. Our salvation is the, is the process of our transformation. That moment when we first feel drawn to come to church, that moment when we first feel like, I should read what this has to say about Christ, that moment when we first are drawn to him, to that moment when we spend, go and to spend eternity with him, being presented spotless before him. As it says in verse 22 of our text, in order to present, so this is, Christ is reconciling us in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is why he came to the earth, to reconcile to himself those who would follow him, those whom he has called. 
And the imagery here is of the Old Testament sacrifices, the lambs as they would be brought in to be slain as a sacrifice for the sins of the people. They had to be inspected, to be looked at, make sure that they had no spots, no blemishes, no defects. And we, are, we, will, be pres- we will be inspected before God. We'll be brought before him. But we don't have to fear in that. Because I know, like, I just say that, and I mean, for me, I'm like, oof, inspected by God, that doesn't sound good. But we don't need to fear, because he promises us that he will present us spotless and blameless. Not because of us, but because he has gone before us. He was the perfect sacrifice so that we can, with him, be made perfect as well. I'll uh, invite the band to come up now as I read just a couple more things. Uh, Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. We are being conformed not into our image, not into the perfect thing that we think we should be, but into the image of Christ, the likeness of our Savior. And the work that he has begun in us when we belong to him, when he has called us, when he has brought us into new life, he will finish. I'll close now as we prepare to worship with a quote, another quote from Piper on this. We believe that we... We believe, sorry, we believe that all who are justified will win the fight of faith. They will persevere in faith and will not surrender finally to the enemy of their souls. Their perseverance is the promise of the new covenant obtained by the blood of Christ and worked in us by God himself, yet not so as to diminish, but only to empower and encourage our vigilance, so that we may say in the end, at our last day, I have fought the good fight, but it was not I, but the grace of God, which was within me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your work. We thank you for your power. We thank you for your calling. We thank you for your grace. Lord, for those of us here who needed to be reminded of that, as we are yours, we do belong to you. I pray that this encouragement would fill us with joy and hope, that we don't have to fear. We know that we are being transformed. We are being made new by you, and you will not lose us. You will hold us tight to the end, as you have paid for us. And for those of us here who say, I don't know, maybe I am just here because of tradition. Maybe I am just here because that's what my parents believe, or maybe I am just here because... It's something to do on a Sunday night. I don't know if I know Christ really. I don't know if I've really had my eyes open, if I've really been brought into new life. I pray, Father, that that would not lead to fear or doubt, but lead to a drawing to you, to want to draw close to you, to want to get to know the real Jesus Christ of the Word of God, and that they would pray that their hearts would be opened to you and to your truth tonight. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.